find the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And y'all forgive my voice this morning. I've been fighting sinus infection that has me rather hoarse or something. My voice doesn't seem right. And under the inspiration of Pastor Ben, I'm going to try technology this morning. <laughs> Didn't know where I was going with that, did you? Um, I think one of the hardest things that I struggled with in preparing for this sermon was really the title. And that seems kind of awkward or odd. However, it it truly was. And so... um, The title is, Jesus, the Son of God, Dwells Among Us. And the questions, number one, how are we able to see God's glory? Why do we need God's grace? And what are the obstacles that we are to overcome in order to become adopted heirs of the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Um, I love the Gospel of John. As, as all the Gospels and all the epistles and all of the whole book of the Bible. Um, however, John really focuses on the deity of Christ. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, um, the synoptic Gospels, if you will, um, go through his life and all the events as they occurred, not exactly in order, but, you know, in somewhat order. But, but, John doesn't start that way. And even though this morning I'm focusing on verses 14 through 18, chapter 1, I want to read the first 18 verses, or the prologue, as they call it, of the Gospel of John. Because to put it in context of what I have to say this morning, through the Holy Spirit. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of, the, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Amen. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit as we worship and give you praise this morning, as we speak your word, that you would apply it to our hearts. Father, I pray that you would use me, Father, to be obedient, to be faithful, to be in truth to your holy word as written in your scriptures. So, Father, and I pray for those that are listening, that you would open their hearts to receive your word and to apply it to their very souls, that the way they would walk and the way that they would go as they leave here would be pleasing in your sight. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, the Apostle John, as I just stated, he starts out with a different purpose than some of the other, than the other Gospels. He immediately presents Christ not as the son of David, nor as merely the great shepherd, but he is presented, go down, but he is presented as the son of God. The apostle takes us back to the beginning and shows that the Lord Jesus has no beginning. The word of God then is deity expressing itself in audible terms. Verse 14 says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The invisible became tangible. The transcendent became imminent. That which was far off drew near. That which was beyond the reach of the human mind became that which could be beholden within the realm of human life. Jesus Christ left heaven left his glory and humbled himself in obedience to the Father and came to earth to his people to sanctify them, to justify them and sanctify them unto his salvation. Without Jesus Christ, we have no salvation. He was very man of man and he was very God of God. He was the God-man. I want you to notice in that first verse where it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word dwelt. Um, as I studied, time and time again, the, it, the reference came back to tabernacled. And if we think in the New Testament, we don't hear the word tabernacled very often or at all. I'm not sure little thunder outside. Lord, there's a punch. <laughs> and, and so tabernacle, when, remember when God's chosen people were going through the wilderness? The cloud would follow them by day and the light, you know, at night, and it would tell them when to move camp and when to stay put. Well, here it is, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. Jesus of the New Testament is the same one of the Old Testament. He has never ceased to be. He has always been and always will be. The Word became flesh. The Word with His divine title became flesh speaks of His holy humanity. See, to save us from our sins, He had to become like us. 
he had to be tempted the same way that we're tempted. He had to go through the pains the same way that you and I go through pains. And yet through his 33 approximately years here on earth, he was without sin. He was the perfect man. He was the God man. He was Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, the two main themes that I, I really want to focus on today, even though I'm sure there's, there's many others um, that you could, uh, man, this, this scripture here is, if you unpacked it all, I mean, there's so many sermons I, I wouldn't even dare to, to say, but the two th- main things that I chose are that, I, that, that the Holy Spirit seemed to be telling me to, to speak upon this morning is, is to inspire, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is cross glory and his grace. His glory and his grace. John talks about God's truth as well. However, we will, we will never know the truth unless he awakens our hearts from the dead. For he is the truth. And before we become children of his, co-heirs of the throne of the kingdom, we were dead in our sins. We were nobodies. We were at enmity with God. And God was at enmity with us. His wrath raised against us. That very wrath that was against us is the very wrath that Jesus received upon the throne at Calvary. Also note in verse 17 how John contrasts Jesus with Moses. You know, John does that a lot in his gospel. He does a lot of contrasting, you know, darkness with light, good and bad, those kinds of things. He says, for the law was given Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law revealed God's justice. A lot of times you hear people about, well, they say things that that seem to be that God's not fair. How could he do this to one, salvation to one, and this one uh, not receive salvation? Well, we want justice, we want fairness. Well, if you want justice, you receive justice. Justice is death. If you want what's fair, no, you don't want what's fair. You want grace. You want what you do not deserve. The law revealed God's justice, but it did not make known his mercy. It testified to his righteousness, but it did not exhibit his grace. It was God's truth, but not the full truth of God himself. We cannot have one without the other, grace and truth. A.W. Pink said, one of my favorite um, authors, as well as my brothers, and I always love to refer to him, there are many who do not like salvation by grace, and there are those who would tolerate grace if they could have it without the truth. The Nazarenes could wonder at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth, but as soon as Christ pressed the truth upon them, They were filled with wrath and sought to cast him down headlong from the brow of the hill whereon the city was built. That's Luke 4.29. See, they wanted one without the other. It doesn't work that way. So point one, how are we able to see the glory of God? Because in verse 14 it stated, We have seen his glory Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We know John, Peter, and James witnessed Jesus' transfiguration. 
and therefore saw a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. Mind you, it's the glory he departed from when he came to us in bodily form. He set aside his glory, but he did not set aside his deity. And that's so important because that's what separates Christianity from all those religions out there. Is a lot of those religions out there, they proclaim, some of them, a lot of them, that Jesus was a disciple, he was a prophet, and all those types of things, that he was a good person, that he did good things, good deeds, he cured people, but they do not believe he was who he said he was, the Son of Man, his favorite title, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God in the flesh, Emmanuel. Philippians 2 tells us of Jesus setting aside his glory and humbling himself, taking the form of a man, it says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, John's gospel account of the earthly life of Jesus is written for a different reason than the other gospels. He really emphasizes the deity of Christ, that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, God Emmanuel. He is in God in the flesh, the God-man, and his favorite title, the Son of Man. John's writings are explicitly designed by God through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to reveal the glory of Christ and to awaken people to see him and have eternal life. Um, again, another quote by um, a great preacher of past time that we all are familiar with, Jonathan Edwards. He said, Jonathan Edwards said this, he said, Grace is but glory begun, and glory is but grace perfected. I mean, how astounding is that, is that quote? Grace is but glory begun, and glory is but grace perfected. You see, the Hebrew word for glory is kabod, and I'm probably, if I mispronounce a lot of these words. I said, the Hebrew word for glory is kabod, K-A-B-O-D. It basically means weight, like, you know, I'm overweight. <laughs> Mom, she, she, uh, she agreed with me on that one. She shook her head too readily. We'll pray for you afterwards. <laughs> Remember in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the son of Phinehas was named Ichabod, meaning the glory of God has left Israel. Remember Eli and his sons and how they were, they were to take care of the, the uh, temple and how they profaned those things, all the holy things set aside for God, and the, the sacrifices, and, and, and all these things. And, and finally, it got so bad that the glory literally left Israel, left the people. Remember, they have the, um, the ark of, of God. They carried it around with them. And, and God's glory, is said, he, he resided there, and they went to him for strength and love. That's how they met him. That's how they... Uh, talk with him, that's how he discussed things with him as Moses went out, as he discussed things with Moses. It is the substance. Now what it means is, in science the word kebab would mean would be the mass of an object of matter. It is the substance of a person or thing. For God, it is who he is, his character and power. We know that God is love. That's 1 John four sixteen. Love is God's character and power. God's glory manifests and reveals his love, which is revealed in Jesus Christ. Moses asked God to see his glory. This was God's reply. 
I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That's Exodus 33, 19. And to answer the question as to how we see the glory of God, we see the glory of God in His Son, Jesus Christ. How are we enabled to see Christ's glory? By God's grace. The Holy Spirit illumines our minds to see His beauty and glory. Notice that He has to illumine our minds to see His beauty and glory. The Holy Spirit has to illumine your mind to see, to give you eyes to see with and ears to hear with. Because as Ephesians 2 says, you once were dead. Go back to Genesis 3, the fall of man. Man died because he was disobedient to the word of God. John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's 1 John 3, 2, sorry. 1 John 3, 2. Isn't that, doesn't that, as, as Pastor Bill shared with us, the lady at hospice, and how when he read Psalm 24 to her, how her face just seemed to come alive, there's a glow there. I mean, this right here should be that assurance for you and I as well, that we shall be like he is one day. We're frail in this temporary body or this tent that we dwell in. It's temporary. It's momentary. It's, it's here for a glimpse. It's not here for long. We pass through. If you really think about it, it seems like yesterday I was in high school or elementary school. And now I'm just a few years of having taught school for 30 years. And it seems like yesterday. So this, this life goes by quickly. And what you do with it means all eternity to you. So the point here is, by his grace, you receive salvation. By his grace, you receive mercy. By his grace, you are loved by God the Father. John uses the contrast between light and darkness frequently. Now, we, now I want to I introduce a word that we don't like to say very often in in church, we don't hear many pastors preach on it, speak on it. A lot of people probably not even heard the word. No, I'm not going to say Calvin, <laughs> even though we could put that one right up there. But the reprobate, reprobation. You see, if you're not of the elect, then you are of the reprobate. In other words, if you are not of God's chosen, then you were not chosen. Does that, that, that makes sense to me. I mean, it just, it's, it's plain and simple. But a lot of people want to say, well, how can that be? God, who is a loving God, one who's, we're talking about his grace and his glory, how in the world could he choose one over the other? The question is, how could he choose any? Reprobation exists in order that election may be realized. Reprobation is necessary to bring the chosen to the glory which God in his infinite love has appointed for them. That God reprobates, there is no doubt. Scripture states, the Lord works out everything for his own ends, even the wicked for a day of disaster. Proverbs 16, 4. That God uses the wicked for his glory 
there can be no doubt either. The righteous man is rescued from trouble, and it comes as the wicked on the wicked instead. Proverbs 11:8. And when we can go through Romans, we can go through Ephesians, we can go through the whole Bible. How God used certain people who were, were evil, reprobate, to glorify His name. How He used certain people to, to bring His chosen people back to obedience. The Israelites, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, they were, they were exiled to Assyria, and then, then later on the southern kingdom to, to Babylon. And they spent some horrific years there. But God yet, He always had a remnant that remained. And you know, He always also had the Gentiles, even though we, we pretty much, in, in our minds, the New Testament, the Gentiles only come into the picture, it seems, in the New Testament. But He's always had us in mind as, as His people through His Father, our Father Abraham, the patriarch Abraham. We go back to the story of Ruth. So there is no better place to see the beauty of Christ than in the horrific death that he died upon on the cross. Um, Dwight Moody said this, as, um, speaking upon Philippians 2. If God became incarnate, what kind of man would he be? If God became a man, we would expect his human life to be sinless. Jesus was. If God were to become a man, he would expect him to be a model of purity. Jesus was. If God were a man, we would expect his words to be the greatest ever spoken. Jesus' words were. If God were to become a man, we would expect him to exert a profound power over human, over human personality. Jesus did. If God were to become a man, he would expect some supernatural acts. And Jesus did them. If God were to become a man, we would expect him to manifest the love of God and Jesus did it in dying on the cross. So, our question, or point one was, how are we to see the glory of God? Answer, in Christ his Son. I'm giving you the answers, by the way. I shouldn't let you cheat like that. <laughs> point two, why do people need grace? Why do you and I need grace? And that's, Indeed, the second question. My points are my questions, and my questions are my points. How about that? <laughs> Without grace, you are not a child of God. Plain and simple. You can't do it. I can't do it. You're born dead, dead in your sins. It takes the Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus' um, conversation with Nicodemus is a good example. There's many others. That seems to be the one that comes to mind most often. John 1, chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, right before these verses that I'm focused on. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, here it is, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Romans 3, 24. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's grace. And to me, and that's, that's you know, we, we talk about Jesus left his, his glory that he possessed in heaven. He came down, but, you know, there's, there's a part of Jesus, his glory that existed to me when he was here on earth. Think about it. He was born of a woman, seed, man's seed and woman. He, he had no earthly father. 
He walked a perfect life, never sinned. And he was able to, he, he rose from the dead. He was killed. He was crucified. Three days later, rose. He ascended back to heaven some days later. And he was able to impute his righteousness to you and I and our sin to him. Glory, hallelujah. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and a renewal of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Beforehand, before you and I ever existed, before you even thought you existed, before the beginning of time. Uh, one of the examples, the uh, biblical examples that, that we are all so familiar with is Saul on the road to Damascus. In chapter 9 of Acts, says that Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, meaning those who belong to Christ, in Christ, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. See, he's the light. Christ is light. He is the light. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, by the way, is the way I believe it's going to happen here one day. When the Lord returns, we're going to be speechless. Because there's not going to be anything that can be left said to be said. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. Isn't that the way we walk around before we're in Christ? We've got eyes, we walk around, but we see nothing. We don't have any uh, discernment towards Scripture. And that's how people take Scripture and they take it out of context and they twist and turn it in any which way they can to deceive us. False teachers, that's the reason that they'll have a little bit of truth mixed in, a little bit of leaven mixed in with, with the dough. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus as Jesus leads us by the hand, as he leads us. We don't, we don't find the way. He leads us to the way. He brings us. He's our shepherd. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Why do we need to be regenerated or born again? Because, as Ephesians says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. How many of you are still following the course of this world today? Even in Christ, how many of us slip up? How many of us find ourselves living for the flesh? All of us. Have you confessed and repented? Have you turned back to your maker, to the one that, that saved you, to the one we are God's gift to his son? The Spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions 
of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And I'm still getting used to this thing. <laughs> but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. See, it's this great love. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And go on down to verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is, this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Point two. Why do we need grace to become a child of God? The answer, because without God's grace you would remain dead in your sins and would not inherit the kingdom of God, you would be of the reprobate. And by the way, it's not that God put that upon you or caused you to sin. You're, you were born in sin. That's your natural state. That's what you like. If, if left alone apart from the Holy Spirit, that's what you're going to turn to. That's the reason you have to be saved from it. And that's what repent means, is to turn away. Well, who's going to repent? Who's going to turn away from something that they like that's natural to them? It takes something supernatural to accomplish that. The Holy Spirit. You see, before the Holy Spirit changed me, I was, I was happy. I was moving along. I, I had no reason to do anything else. Man, life was great. And then when I, my eyes were illumined by the Holy Spirit and I saw how, how dead I was and how darkness just overcome me and that's how disobedient and, and uh, just how I just broke God's heart as I, as I just a child of his just but then we think of that about that and we think about how God then sent his son his only begotten the perfect man to earth to be crucified in, in, in my place in my stead what I deserved it's of grace to God's glory you see, they go hand in hand. All right, point three, because I know you guys are ready for me to allow Brother Richard to come up and talk to us for an hour or so about Gideon's as he, he gets kind of long-winded, you know. <coughs> point three, what are the obstacles that we are to overcome by the help of the Holy Spirit, by the way, in order to become adopted heirs with the Son of God? Two kinds of darkness have to be removed. The glory of the Son of God has to be revealed in the world for us to see. And the blindness and darkness of our own hearts has to be removed. There is a darkness in the world and there is a darkness in our souls. Both have to be overcome, otherwise we cannot see the glory of the Son of God. An individual does not think he needs to be saved unless he thinks he has a need to be saved. And that's the reason I've always maintained I believe it's harder to save someone who has been in the church for 40 years than it is to go to a country somewhere far away in the jungles and to save someone who's never heard the gospel. Because people that's heard it over and over has a heart that's hardened. 
like Pharaoh's in the Old Testament, who time and time again was given chance after chance, warning after warning. But what happened to his heart? Did it soften? No, it became harder. You see, it's, it's, harder, to, it's harder to give someone the gospel that, that's heard over and over because, for one thing, they think they don't need it. They don't have a need for it. They don't see themselves as reprobate. They don't see themselves as, as being unholy or unrighteous. They believe they're going to heaven. If you ask them, they'll tell you, yes, I'm going to heaven. Why? Because I haven't done anything bad. Really? Well, what good have you done? What's good? You see, we have to see ourselves as we truly are. Romans 3, and you can also confer with Isaiah 59, 7 through 8. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's pretty clear to me. That's plain spoken language right there. It's, it's, it's right out in front of us. Their throat is an, is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Pretty straightforward, pretty clear describes us before we were before we were regenerated re, before we received a rebirth a new birth in Christ Jesus John chapter 3 says now there was a man of the Pharisees talking about Nicodemus and I'll go through this fairly fast this, this man he, he came to Jesus by night and he, he approached him he says rabbi which means teacher we know that you are a teacher came from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him then he should have just stopped right there why did he need to go any further? If that's what he believed and he knew the Old Testament, these Pharisees, they were masters of the Old Testament. They knew it inside and out. Well, he, he said the answer himself. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus answered and said, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it will. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the question, what are the main obstacles that prevent us from becoming co-heirs of the kingdom of Christ is simply this. We have to see ourselves as we truly are at enmity before God and as sinners and as sinners God is at enmity toward us. It's the often controversial question does God love the sinner but hates the sin? I want to acknowledge however that explaining God's love toward the reprobate is not as simple as most people or churchgoers want to make it. Clearly there is a sense in which the psalmist's expression I hate the assembly of evildoers in Psalm 26 as a reflection of the mind of God. Do I not hate those who hate thee, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against thee? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Such hatred as the psalmist expressed is a virtue. 
And we have every reason to conclude that it is the hatred God himself shares. After all, he did say, I have hated Esau. The context reveals God was speaking to a whole race of wicked people. So there's a true and real sense in which the scripture teaches that God hates the wicked. But then we have a benevolence. We have, there is a benevolent, benevolent love of God towards all things and people. In Matthew, and people like to throw this out there, and it's true, it's benevolent grace, he says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. In Psalms 139, it is that gives us an important perspective on this matter. To hate someone is to count him as an enemy and to treat him as an enemy. In the Bible, hatred is not an emotion primarily, but rather a covenant action. Those who treat God as an enemy will find God treating them the same way. Since they are his enemies and he hates them, he will destroy them. Rather than just a benevolent love, God has a particular love toward those who are believers in Christ Jesus. Through and by the Holy Spirit, these people have been justified by the death of Jesus upon the cross. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to all the nations. This was decided before the beginning of time. So in summary, it was the grace of the Son of God that opened our blind eyes, and it was the glory of the Son of God that we saw when our eyes were opened. So what are you really living for? And it's crucial to realize that you either glorify God or you glorify something or someone else. You're always making something look big. If you don't glorify God when you are involved in a conflict, you inevitably show that someone or something else rules your heart. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for, for your words. I thank you for the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that anything misspoken on my behalf will be forgiven, that by your grace, that you will make clear through the Holy Spirit to the hearts of those that are here to hear. Father, we, we come before you, Father, just in adoration of your grace and your love and your forgiveness and your mercy. Father, at the same time, we know that you're righteous and we know that you will hold all those accountable to those who do not believe have been disobedient to you. Father, I thank you for your holy word. I thank you for for the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ who, who saved me from my sins. In Christ's name I pray, amen.